The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. And just being able to kind of look at a plant and, and know what it needs. One of the things that never gets old for cultivators, and really it's gardeners too, right? I walk around my backyard and I do the same thing, is looking at the plant and like loving on it, you know, and just oh, look at how beautiful it is. Oh, look, I've got a new flower. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast Season 6, regular listeners to the show, welcome back, welcome back. It's always nice to have you back and I'm glad you keep returning and are getting value from these podcast episodes and hopefully brought along a couple of new friends. If you are one of those new friends, if you are someone who is finding this show for the very first time, as always, we'd like to roll out the green carpet and welcome you. Thank you, thank you for your support of this show and for giving us a shot. If this is your first time listening, I'm sure you're in the right place, as this is the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. Last week, great episode. Nadun Henayaka, he's the founder and CEO at Gaia Project Australia, a company with a vision to combine the most developed technologies to produce sustainable food and electricity to every human on this planet. That's very aspirational and very motivating. Nadun has over 20 years of experience in engineering and tech and well-versed in this arena. We had a great conversation about their partnership with NASA and the way in which his company is shining a light on technological innovations happening in the space. Make sure you check that one out. This week, we have the pleasure of speaking with Brandy Keene. She's the co-founder and senior technical advisor at Cerna. Brandy and I connected briefly at Indoor AgTech NYC, and I'm glad she was able to make time to come on the show. Cerna designs, engineers, and manufactures application-specific environmental control and air sanitation systems for the indoor ag tech and indoor cannabis cultivation industry. In this episode, we talk about the origins of Hydro Innovations, her first company, which was acquired by Cerna, and the impact that CEA has on the world's water supply and what the future holds for the growth of the cannabis industry. It's not a topic we cover often on this show as it's a bit of a rabbit hole and I've had a lot of thoughts about maybe branching out into a separate show just for that, but right now I've got my hands full. So every once in a while when I find a founder or CEO at a company in the indoor farming space that I wanna share with you, that's my first priority. And so I'm glad we got a little peek into what's happening in the cannabis industry. It's really fascinating to see some of the parallels and it's great to hear Brandy's inspiring story. Okay, as always, don't forget, we're on the lookout for new reviews. Please leave yours at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFB so I can read that out next. We are wrapping up season six. I'm so excited for this journey we've been on since starting this podcast in 2020. I'm grateful for all the comments, all the support, all the engagement we got on social media. The one slight blip was the the closing of our Instagram account, which I'm still in the progress of figuring out how that happened. I can't imagine any of the content there would have been objectionable uh, to anyone watching it as we're just trying to raise awareness of this uh, amazing space. So if any of the listeners know anyone at Meta who might be able to help with that, by all means, reach out to me, harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. 
But other than that, I really can't complain. This was an amazing year for me. I got to go to my first indoor ag conference, indoor ag con, followed by indoor ag tech NYC, and then rounding it out in October, courtesy of our great sponsor Cultivated with a trip to Dubai, which was eye-opening on so many fronts. And it's great to see the team in action at AgriMe. So a lot of those are on the calendar for next year already. So I'm excited, starting with Indoor AgCon in Vegas in February. So hopefully I get to see you at one of these conferences. If you are a regular listener, by all means, if we cross paths, come up and say hi, as I always like to put a face to a ear. <laughs> I don't know if that's a thing, but yeah, I always like to connect with folks that are listening to the show on a regular basis. Sometimes as I record these intros, it feels like I'm talking to myself because I actually am. I'm in a room right now <laughs> just recording this intro after usually the conversation I've had with my guests so I can get a, a good idea of what to talk about in terms of what we shared. So always on the lookout to meet new folks in the community. I'm looking at ways to create an, a, an online space. I know there's been a lot of talk about what's happening on Twitter with regards to <laughs> everything that Elon's doing. So it's having folks look at alternatives. And one of them that I've been digging into for my other podcast is called Mastodon. There's a variety of different servers. So I'm thinking of spinning off something maybe just for this community, if that's something that makes sense or you think would uh, be something you'd be interested in joining Again, same email, harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. Let me know. I'll start to get something in the works and try to pilot it out in Q1. This should be all the episodes that we have in the can for this year as we wrap up and finish season six. Depending how the next couple of days go and what I can get done with uh, everything that I'm trying to get accomplished before the end of the year, I may drop a bonus episode. So keep an eye on your podcast player for that, uh, something small of some content that I came across that I think might be helpful for this audience. But if we don't get to speak or connect until the new year, I'm wishing you and your family a happy holiday. I hope you find this time to renew, relax, recharge, whatever it is that's helpful for you during this time. I'm looking to do the same and hoping for nothing but good things for this community in 2023. Okay, before we jump into this uninterrupted conversation... One last word in 2022 from the amazing folks that support this show. This episode is brought to you by Indoor AgCon 2023. I'm so happy to have been working with the team last year. Indoor AgCon 2022 was my very first indoor farming conference. So it was really eye-opening for me. So I'll always be grateful to the team there for rolling out the carpet for me. <laughs> and I uh, really had a good time meeting a lot of past guests and excited to join them again this year. Entering its 10th year in a row, it's the largest trade show and conference for vertical farming and CEA, and it's returning to Caesars Forum Conference Center in Las Vegas on February 27th and 28th of 2023. Once again, they'll be co-located with the National Growers Association show as well, which is a really good fit for them. The conference keeps growing, and this year it's doubled in size. The expo floor now has more than 170 booths filled with new product resources and solutions to explore. You'll hear from experts, including CEOs, growers, investors, and others in the field during this full-scale educational conference. As always, you'll be able to connect with peers, grocers, and other potential new business partners at their great networking events. I haven't even gotten to the best part. The team at Indoor AgCon has given listeners of this show 20% off their full access conference pass. All you have to do is use promo code VFP, as in Vertical Farming Podcast, and sign up at indoor.ag. See you there. Regular listeners to the show will know that we are also fans of the work being done by the iGrow News team. The team at iGrow has been kind enough to provide a free month of their paid subscription to the Indoor Vertical Farming newsletter. And those will be available to the first three listeners that send in a review. So ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP, the first three reviews that come in. Once it's sent, send an email to harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com along with your preferred email, and we'll be sure to get that set up for you. So Brandy Keene, co-founder and senior technical advisor at Cerna, thank you for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. So we briefly connected at Indoor AgTech NYC. Yeah. Have you been to any other conferences since then? Yeah, actually, I just left Resilient Harvests in uh, Long Beach, which was really nice. It was, you know, the AgTech conference was very focused on food and Resilient Harvest is a similar kind of format, but it was food cultivators and the cannabis industry were kind of brought together, which was really interesting. And then of course we've got MJ Biz next week in Las Vegas, which is 
the uh, the biggest show in the cannabis industry. So, which is always kind of overwhelming. I'm looking forward, <laughs> looking forward to it, but looking forward to a very long nap when we get back. I saw that you posted on LinkedIn as well. And the nap was not related to the topic that's going to be covered at the conference, right? <laughs> no, more of the early mornings, late nights. And I, I, I'm a glutton for punishment. I do this thing where I try to make a game of how long I can stay in heels at a trade show booth. And so I usually need a pedicure too. <laughs> <laughs> how do those usually end up going for you in you know conferences and the experience you've had doing them for Cerna? Is it the traffic at the booth? Is it the connections you make from the conversations that you meet throughout the conference? And knowing that's conference space from the podcasting side a little bit, and the couple that I've been to in the indoor farming space, it may be a combination of everything, but there's also like, you know, the one-off hallway conversations as well. So, you know, where's the value for you? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. And it's really evolved over the course of our business. I would say that, you know, early on, in the early stages of our company and then you know in the early stages of the cannabis industry trade shows were really how you got leads i mean that's really how you know how uh, how you found folks you know and, and how folks found you and i think to a certain extent that is still true in specific markets i think that shows like this one and really our presence we're a big enough company now that not many folks who are thinking of entering this space don't aren't aware of us, you know, on some level, but this show is, you know, there's a lot of thought leadership. They're very, very selective about, you know, who speaks at this event and what the subject matter is. So I really like, you know, to kind of pick and choose the, uh, the folks that I like to hear speak at these events. And then just because of the size of this one, it's a great opportunity to reconnect, you know, with folks you haven't seen in a while, whether that be clients or partners or even coworkers now that we're also, you know, kind of spread out and then also, you know, networking and hallway conversations, that kind of thing. So we kind of run the gamut with, uh, with shows as far as their, the value that they bring to us. From the folks that I've spoken to and I've started the show in 2000, I, I think something unique that you bring to the table is your experience in this industry. <laughs> I mean, you started with Hydro Innovation. So to the extent that we can wind the clock back a little bit, can you talk a little bit about the founding story and then we'll work our way up into to Cerna? But uh, can you tell, talk a little bit about the origin story at Hydro Innovation? Yeah, I would love to say that this was our master plan. It wasn't. <laughs> But so our company, Hydro Innovations, was founded in 2006. And my background was technical sales. I worked in the semiconductor industry, a lot of clean rooms and a lot of consumables associated with semiconductors. And uh, my husband had a commercial construction company at the time and an automotive background. And we had just a little indoor hobby garden at the time. And at the time, the indoor gardening industry was not the cannabis industry, right? It was your garden, right? And he just, you know, kind of was like some of the ways that people are doing things specifically related to climate management is really dumb. You know, it just seems really silly and wasteful. And he's, I would say, not an engineer by education, but certainly by application to some extent. And he came up with a couple of product ideas and uh, we had some connections with the big distributors at the time, which at that time, you know, Sunlight Supply, which is now Hawthorne and uh, Hydrofarm. And um, we just kind of showed them what we had and they were pretty interested in it. And we said, oh, okay, great. You know, I was still at my job and kind of doing the office side of Hydro Innovations, moonlighting. And then Stephen, you know, kind of stopped taking on new construction projects and, and started focusing his time on getting these products manufactured. And we also built a house and had a baby that year, which I don't necessarily recommend doing <laughs> the same year, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. but it, it was, you know, and then there was a second product and then a third product. And then, you know, that was, we, you know, now suddenly we had a, a company and a warehouse and employees and uh, that's really how it happened. We did have, you know, I think we made a, a series of good decisions and we also had a lot of lucky timing. Right. Yeah. It, we happened to kind of enter the market at a time of big growth and then happened to expand our company and kind of turn into Cerna 
in concurrently with a, a huge amount of growth in, in the industry. And, and that wasn't necessarily roadmapped, but, uh, but we certainly, you know, took advantage of, of opportunities when they presented themselves. What was uh, the focus of Hydro in those early days? Like what specific parts of the, the industry were you looking to specialize in? So we were always focused on climate management and heat and humidity control. And that was always, so our very first product was, If stop me if this is a little bit too granular, but way, way back in those days, everyone used HID reflectors for lighting systems and they were all air-cooled. And we just designed a, a simple radiant barrier custom fitted overlay that went over a, a reflector and we put it in a tent and the temperature in the tent went down four degrees in about an hour and a half. And we went, huh, that's interesting. And so we didn't have any, any real money. We didn't borrow any money to invest in the business at the time. And so that's when we reached out to Sunlight Supply and we said, hey, if we made this for you, you know, could you use it? And it was custom fitted to each of their, I don't know, 50 different reflector models that they had. And they said, yeah, that's kind of a cool idea. And it was great for us because all we had to invest was in the fabric. And we didn't, they packaged it, they marketed it, they, you know, they did all of these things. And so it was a, a great start. And then our next product was a water-cooled CO2 generator. I'm everyone used CO2 burners. And they, you know, created an enormous amount of heat in the rooms that you then had to cool. And so Stephen built one and he went, huh, I just made a tankless water heater. <laughs> right? <laughs> and I was yeah. like, yeah, you actually, that's what you just made. And so what we did is we reached out to manufacturers of tankless water heaters and said, you know, this is what we're looking for. Do you want to build this for us? Instead of kind of reinventing the wheel and building something that people would have to spend, you know, $2,000 for, what we did instead was found, a, you know, we had to make them cleaner burning. We had to put in a number of safety features, a lot of things that made them suitable for indoor use as opposed to, you know, water heaters, right? But the concept was essentially the same. And that's the first product that was actually marketed under that brand name. And it was a enormously helpful to a lot of folks, gigantic pain in the, you know what? I mean, you know, we were obsessive about it being safe, you know, for folks to use, which also made it a little temperamental. Right. And so, you know, it, it was a lot, it took a lot of support, a lot of phone calls, helping people, you know, figure out how to keep it from turning itself off. So it, you know, if it wasn't unhappy for some reason, but then from there, then we started making heat exchangers to help kind of boost the the output of the the air cooling and in uh, reflector systems, and then that led us down the path of chiller systems and chilled water, which then led us to climate systems. And uh, you know, by 2013, we were a you know at that point an engineering company. How much of it was learning, like on the job, so to speak, or just and also learning the industry that you were in? Because it seems like you know, coming from an engineering background, like definitely have the uh, it sounds like your husband's definitely got the tinkering chops to just be trying things out and seeing what works, what doesn't. But then there's also an understanding of of the industry that you're entering and like all the nuances you know that come with that as well. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because you're you're right. I mean, that's really what he did is he he always you know was willing to kind of go do something new, and it was my job to kind of hold it down while he you know went off adventuring you know into or risk taking into whatever that risk you know was. And so, I think we knew the industry well enough just from the perspective at the time that we entered it. Right, it changed so dramatically over, you know, has changed so substantially over the years. But at the time, because he was, you know, a hobby cultivator, we knew several retail store owners, you know, that we were, you know, got to be pretty good friends with or or close with. Like I said, we had some contacts at some of the major distributors and those folks. So I don't think we were really surprised by the industry as it existed at the time that we entered the industry. We certainly had to learn, you know, what it was like to be on the product manufacturer side of things, right? And uh, and of course, my kind of practical mind is always, okay, 
was reliability insurance, right? <laughs> How are we protecting ourselves and then making sure that we're putting out products that are safe, you know, for folks to use? And his brain was always, you know, how do I make the next thing? What's the next thing that people are, are going to be able to use? And I'm mine's, you know, how am I paying taxes? And his is how am I paying for the next production run of something, right? And so that was really kind of how it went there for a long time. When the industry changed, you know, Colorado, Arizona, Washington, and then shortly after that, Canada, I mean, it was kind of an overnight shift, right? And, you know, we went from doing 12 light rooms to 50 light rooms, which seemed huge at that point in time. Obviously, that's a, you know, cute now, but no. (laughs) 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 And, uh, but I think that we were, we didn't have to go backwards to learn about an industry. We were in the industry and we were kind of living it as it was changing, right? And so we just were kind of evolving right along with the industry itself and maturing right along with the industry. And keeping in mind too, that at that time, if you had $50,000 in Colorado in 2012 to build a cultivation facility, you were pretty well funded. (laughs) You know, that was because it's not like you were getting huge investment, you know, and now the industry has continued to mature and to evolve. And now it's, you know, we're seeing 30 and $50 million facilities as opposed to $50,000 facilities. And so we, we started seeing what the industry was going to need and what they were going to need from us specifically, not just from a product standpoint, but also from an engineering and design and construction management standpoint, right? Start adding those resources. So when did you start having the conversations with Cerna and how big had Hydro gotten up, up until that point? So I can't remember the exact dates. You'll forgive me. I can give you plus or minuses. I think it was 2013 is when, you know, we're acquired by or merged into Cerna. And Hydro Innovations' biggest year, we were, we only had about, there were five of us, five employees. We had six at our, I think our biggest and we weren't making anything, right? We were buying things from factories and having things made for us. And then we had the warehouse and receiving, you know, sales, that sort of thing. And our best year was just right out a million dollars in revenue for a year. And then, you know, then we went to 3 million and then to 8 million, right? And that happened very, very quickly. And, you know, that was something that we learned was at that time was how, difficult it is to manage growth like that, right? How many systems, when a system is dependent on you talking to the shipping and receiving guy next to you, right? That's a lot different than, you know, making sure that you have a process, right? To like, to fulfill a set of orders, but we were still just providing products and equipment at that time, right? And then, you know, from that, through those years is when we picked up there's no one size fits all answer to climate systems in particular in cultivation facilities, right? Sometimes, you know, there are 10 different ways you can do it. None of them are wrong, right? And, and you know, there's probably a hundred different ways you can do it, but it really, you know, it's, you, you quantify the problem and then you apply the solution, right? Yeah. And, and it's really about kind of identifying what solution to apply. And so, you know, we learned very quickly that we needed to not just sell one solution, right? That we needed to be able to provide all of the solutions that could be applied and then, you know, have the expertise to engineer those solutions so that when they are applied, they're applied well. How did your role change with the merger? So I went, yeah, well, I went from, you know, kind of running the show to not, which was welcomed. (laughs) (laughs) A sigh of relief, maybe. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I'm good at what I'm good at and I'm not prideful enough. They're so prideful that I can't acknowledge what I'm not good at. And which is why I feel like I, I tend to get more credit, frankly, than I really should have for what Cerna is today. It had very little to do with me and had everything to do with the folks who leave this company and, and everyone else who's here. But primarily I was working in sales. And, you know, having these conversations with owners and helping to kind of 
project manage also for a while until we realized that, you know, that's probably not something that one person can really do. Right. Yeah. And my role now is I'm very, very familiar with every conceivable cultivation practice, very, very familiar with every conceivable, you know, application of climate systems, that sort of thing. So while I do work in a sales capacity to some extent, what I really do is communicate, right? And and explain, go through these systems with clients, you know, kind of help them identify the, I would say pros and cons or everything has good things about it and bad things about it, right? When you buy them into a cultivation facility. So kind of helping them understand those, you know, and guiding them to a decision that fits their goals the best. And then I, I participate a lot in content and blogs and, and you know, white papers with, uh, with our amazing marketing team. How have you seen the industry grow or mature, obviously being there in Colorado and Ground Zero as everything was taking off? You've alluded to the fact that it's, you know, you could do a lot with a little bit of money back then because everyone just sort of getting their feet wet and figuring out like, not necessarily the wild, wild west, but a little, <laughs> a little of just like flying by the seat of your pants, right? And I think I remember seeing one of those Netflix documentaries about the early days what it was like. It was pretty crazy. So it must be interesting for you to see how, I don't know if corporatized is the right word, but just how it's grown, how it's matured, the sophistication of the technologies that are now being used for cultivation. And can you talk a little bit about like how you've seen that growth over the years? Yeah. I heard somebody refer to it as there was a period of time where the cannabis industry desperately needed some adults in the room. And I, I think that that's accurate in a number of ways. It doesn't mean that the folks who dived into the commercial, you know, legal cannabis industry early on aren't absolute pioneers and didn't pave the way for what this industry is today, right? Because without them, we aren't here, right? But I would say that there was very little, it was all about just, first of all, we call it anecdotal science, right? <laughs> Meaning this is what's always worked in my basement or in my, you know, utility building or, you know, whatever it is. And therefore that's how I'm going to do it now. And probably not the best way to do certain things. Right. And, but it was, I got to get as much as I can, as fast as I can and uh, whatever I got to do. Right. Yeah. And so we saw a lot of that. We had folks pay us in cash a few times, which, you know, our bank didn't like. Um, <laughs> Definitely Wild West there. Yeah, that was always interesting. We are actually our first medical facility was actually in Arizona. And then we, you know, Colorado, Washington, and Canada all kind of hit at one time. Canada was different from, you know, from the United States, just because there was investment, there was corporate dollars, you know, kind of going into these facilities where in the US it was just so much bootstrapping in those, you know, in those early days of particularly the, those first few states, right? Now, new states that come online, if there's any difficulty or any barriers to licensing, you generally have a pretty sophisticated group getting those licenses, right? They may not be super experienced, but they're, you know, kind of business minded for the most part. We still see a rush to be first to market, sometimes at the expense of wise decision-making, but it's not nearly as prevalent as it was, you know, back in those days. For the benefit of the listener who may not be familiar with CERNA, how would you describe, you know, who your ideal client is, who are the partners that you work with and what your current offerings are? So CERNA, what we do now is we are a uh, supplier and service partner to commercial cultivators, whether that's in the cannabis industry or in the food industry. We do everything from, you know, kind of initial real estate assessment, architectural design, mechanical, electrical, and plumbing design, which these are the kind of the four permits you have to get when you're contemplating building a facility like this. Very, very specialized to, uh, to cultivation operations. And then we provide equipment associated with their climate control in their facilities, which folks who aren't familiar with the industry is probably their biggest capital investment and probably their most 
critical decision as far as maintaining climate and in cannabis in particular, so in, in food. We provide building automation and control systems and then certain other, you know, kind of parts and pieces to, uh, to cultivation facilities. So we really get involved, you know, from concept all the way through to commission. And how much overlap or how much of what you've learned and, and obviously all the experience you had in your previous company and now with CERN in terms of all aspects of that climate control, you mentioned cannabis and then also food production. Are you seeing that the experience that you had all those years with cannabis is providing you sort of that trusted advisor status when it comes to like working with companies in the food production space as well? Absolutely. And it's interesting because somebody asked me, you know, what brought us to pivot from cannabis to food? And my answer was there was no pivot. We've always served the indoor cultivation market and food just didn't exist at the scale that cannabis did, right? So it was really just a product of the existence of a market, not of us consciously making a decision to also do this other thing, right? It's all indoor cultivation. It's all controlled in agriculture. And I would make the argument that if you can design a facility for cannabis, particularly as it relates to mechanical systems and HVAC and climate control systems, it's a little easier in a lot of ways and uh, in some ways a little harder, you know, with leafy greens in particular, where you have multi-rack situations and, and you have to deal with microclimates and those sorts of things to a, a greater extent than you do cannabis. But it absolutely, the inputs are different, but the overarching kind of goals and the calculations and all of those things are really the same. When did you start to see at CERNA there was increased interest in folks from the food production side? I would say, you know, we have had interest in it forever, right? And and it's extremely exciting to me. I get kind of amped up about it, honestly. But probably the last two years is where we really started to see that industry, you know, start to really ramp up on the field. And where are you seeing, do you see it in specific crops or specific regions or specific parts of the, the globe as well, like where you're seeing the most activity? So leafy greens is still the primary and certain herbs are still the primary crop for indoor facilities. And the Northeast is really kind of the epicenter in the United States for that. Starting to see it, you know, drift toward the Midwest a little bit. And I expect it to, I mean, you know, there's some version of a CEA facility in most states, but the density is highest in, in I think, in the, in the Northeast, where interestingly, you know, there's shorter growing cycle, shorter growing season, right? Denser populations, you know, that sort of thing. So it makes sense that that's where, you know, the first few would really get their feet wet. But I just, like I said, I could talk about this forever. I get so excited about water resources and food deserts and, you know, eliminating transportation as a barrier to getting fresh food. And, you know, there's so much about it that makes me so excited. I can't wait to see it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I didn't plan it that way, but the timing of the show, I literally was having my first interviews as COVID hit in March of 2020. So, you know, when you talk about the feeling, the direct impacts of uh, supply chain issues, food deserts, accessibility to fresh food, like everything was really front and center for everyone. It was like, you know, people were talking about it up until that point, but they were experiencing it now. And I think that's really what caused a big shift and, and it's something that you alluded to. And so when you, obviously you're going to MJ BizCon, but then you were also at, at Indoor Ag Tech NYC. So do you find that the nature of the conversations are different or the concerns or the needs for folks that are in the food production space? Yes and no. I think that in the food production space, folks are a lot more investments or longer term, right? than they are in the cannabis space, meaning that, you know, the investors in the cannabis industry are looking for a faster payback in general. I think that in the food industry, folks are a lot more open to technologies that can drive down operating costs, as opposed to in the cannabis industry, they tend to be a little more, I don't want to say resistant, because that's not really the right word, but a lot more wary of changing the way they do things. Right. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's part of it. And then also, 
you know, that, I mean, investments are limited everywhere, right? You have X dollars and that's what you have. But investors in food facilities, I think, you know, there's not a human on the planet who doesn't have to eat, right? And so you have a, maybe a slightly different mindset from the investment side of things. I see a lot more plant scientists in food than, than you do in, in cannabis. And although, you know, we do see more and more, you know, degree horticulturalists and that sort of thing on the cannabis side of things too. And that's not to take away from the growers who've been cultivating cannabis for 20 years and maybe they can't, you know, define why a certain process works the way that it does, but they've certainly perfected it. Right. And there's a, you have a lot of respect for folks who've been able to perfect a result, you know, through a risk-taking and application too. It's almost like they've honed in that their ability to grow almost from an instinctual nature or just trial and error and just knowing what works. And it's almost like a really good chef who can just, who's got the recipe down, but you know, he's not very specific in terms of the science of like the exact measurements, but he knows, you know, just leaning on those years of experience and decades of experience, like what works and what doesn't. That and just being able to kind of look at a plant and, you know, know what it needs. You know, it's always really, and one of the things that's always been really funny to me too, is how much, you know, one of the things that never gets old for cultivators and really it's gardeners too, right? I walk around my backyard and I do the same thing is looking at like loving on it, you know, and just, oh, look at how beautiful it is. Oh, look, I've got a new flower. I've got it, you know. And then, oh, it's week nine. Let's chop them down and start over, right? You, you die now. You die. I love you, but you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> that cycle, right? Yeah. But I've seen it in those cultivators, the same like feeling I get when a daylily blooms or, you know, or something in my backyard, you know, walking through this, these rooms and just being so excited by how your crop looks. It's really cool. Do you see a shift in uh, on the cannabis side with, you know, the proliferation of these newer technologies, robotics, cameras, sensors, you know, everything that's coming into like the food production space. And I imagine it's making its way into the cannabis space as well. Is, is that changing the dynamic of the types of teams you need to succeed or the mix of experience or skill sets necessary nowadays? It does. And it's one thing that we really sometimes in the cannabis industry struggle with. And that is the folks who know how to operate the facilities, right? You have these folks who really know the gardening side or the cultivation side of things. But when it comes to me, you know, we're building rocket ships and as amazing as your head cultivator is, he can't work on your rocket ship, you know? And so, you know, kind of helping folks understand the systems engineers that they might need or the folks, you know, that they need to be able to call to come help them take care of their facility. And the more technology there is, you know, certainly, yes, the more that helps me to optimize yields and to, to optimize quality and whether that be, you know, odor and terpenes and visual results on the cannabis side, or whether that means flavor or, or volume on the food side, that also makes us more and more and more and more dependent on technology, right? And when we get into a position where the technology needs to be serviced, somebody's got to be around who knows how to do that, right? Yeah. And uh, and so we do find, you know, that cannabis side of things in particular, sometimes the the folks who are planning the facilities may kind of overlook that when they're, you know, planning for their employees or salaries or offices, you know, those sorts of things. Where on the food side of thing, I think folks are more kind of prepared that they need folks with that skill set. Yeah, it's interesting to see how the industry is maturing. You also participated in the Cannabis Sustainability Group in Denver. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, I, uh, I'm i kind of a more of an observing member these days. I don't join as many of the calls and meetings as I, as I would like to, uh, but I was part of the original work group. And what we did is we developed the very first set of best practices for cultivators. And it was really for the city of Denver, but a lot of folks ended up kind of using that as a basis for, you know, 
for some of their own other regional references. It was a really cool group of folks. It was a mixture of cultivators and ancillary service providers and equipment suppliers and marketing professionals. And there was a lot of different things that the group did. But, you know, my primary role was to contribute to the authorship of the best practices for for HVAC systems. And then I, you know, kind of helped to edit some of the lighting and and other things that we, we developed that first year. That's evolved enormously, right? Has been added to and edited and changed. And, you know, as as uh, the industry continues to mature, in fact, I don't think there was even a control section in that that first best practices guide, you know, and uh, and obviously controls is a is a huge huge part of the uh, the conversation. But again, back then, that wasn't a real common investment, right? And a lot of timers and that sort of thing. But you know, I, the group of folks that worked on that were so knowledgeable and so dedicated to you know to producing something that promoted sustainability in cultivation facilities, and then, you know, also gave cultivators a real resource. I mean, it was valuable information. And I don't, I think it was the first really of its kind. I don't know of any area who really did anything like that. Since then, like I said, you know, some other folks have, there's, you know, there are a number of other groups that are are working on some kind of national standards and or best practices that I think are, are pretty great. Given your experience in industry, are there lessons that you could see would be applicable for folks in the, you know, food services just, you know, still not necessarily early days, but definitely doesn't have the track record of everything that you've experienced uh, in the cannabis industry. So, you know, having had that experience from early on, can you think of anything that might be something that could be lessons learned or something to look out for or something that would be helpful for, you know, for, for an industry that's a little bit more mature than where we are in vertical farming in terms of food production? Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, try your hardest not to sacrifice operating expenses for time to market, right? I mean, everybody's trying to get it done as fast as they can, as fast as they can, as fast as they can. But, you know, if you shortcut something or go, I'll deal with that later, you almost never end up dealing with it later. You almost always end up dealing with it for the life of the facility because of how difficult it is to, you know, stop your production and go retrofit, you know, to do something along those lines. The other thing that I would say is there are, back when we first started in the cannabis industry, cannabis cultivators did not have experienced engineering and design resources, right? Yeah. It was whoever can design a building, help me get permits for this and, you know, I'll figure it out. And now the vertical farming and food industry has this benefit, frankly, of all these folks that learned how to do these, this stuff in the cannabis industry, right? And learn the questions to ask. And so don't, overlook really experienced design help in favor of, you know, someone who maybe works in the municipality that you happen to be building it, right? Because there's a, there are a lot of nuances. This is really specialized. And, you know, like I said, everything from microclimates to, you know, figuring out your actual transpiration situation, right? And everything in between, there's a lot of folks who've done a lot of it. And, uh, and they can help you without having to teach someone else on your dollar, right? Yeah, or starting from scratch. <laughs> yeah, that's very helpful. I noticed that the, the team also published a report or a, on the blog about why so many indoor farms fail. <laughs> and so I was wondering if there was a couple of takeaways from that that might be helpful for this audience, because it's something that's top of mind. Obviously, as of this recording, you know, there's the news of fifth season shutting its doors, a couple others, you know, there as well. And so I'm wondering, it's, you know, it's something that's definitely top of mind for folks. I'm wondering, you know, as if you can speak a little bit to what, you know, some of the things were that you covered there. Yeah. And that, that's actually, I would highly recommend anybody to go out and read that blog. Courtney wrote that when she's one of our, our marketing team and she's, I just, she's amazing, but, you know, kind of at the very top of her list is diving into a market, just racing to get there without really understanding the market, right? Who's your customer? You know, 
buying your product and and then how do you how do you tailor your approach to who that customer is right you know do i need to go out and build a 300,000 square foot facility in a market that has 4 million consumers probably not right but do we see folks contemplating that or something along those lines you know we do the other was you know and I've kind of alluded to this earlier, one of the other the other points that we make is sacrificing long-term operating costs and sacrificing longevity for the, the sake of getting to market quickly, right? And this is a little bit different between cannabis and, and food. Inevitably, in a mature market, the pound price for cannabis declines, right? There are some exceptions, you know, really, really well-regulated markets where, or where there were, I say, say well, tightly regulated markets where there were high barriers to entry. But for the most part, you know, when it's a new market in a state, you have a, a really high price of a product and then it just goes down and down and down and down and down. And, you know, there are periods of time in Colorado and Washington where the cost of a wholesale pound was well below what it costs to produce that pound. Right. And so really, you know, looking at what you expect prices to do in a market and making sure that you can produce that product, you know, in within the confines of what that product is going to sell for. A lot different from food, right? We're not going to see lettuce prices all of a sudden just, you know, drop by 80%, right? But you still, you know, you still need to have a realistic understanding of what it's going to cost you to produce and then make investments wherever you can in, in minimizing those production costs. Because at the end of the day, the folks who can produce a high quality product at the lowest price are the folks who are going to, you know, kind of survive the ebbs and flows of any market. We'll be sure to make, to have that article linked in the show notes as well, so they can read through it. Cause I think it was very insightful and eye-opening and a helpful reminder that uh, it's not all, you know, roses and rainbows <laughs> in this market, as much as people are really hyped up on, you know, the promise of vertical farming, you know, you alluded to it a little bit in, earlier about how excited you are about, you know, what's happening in this space, you know, fixing the problem of food deserts. What else specifically, you know, when you think about, you know, the promise of what's possible and just, the, you know, from your experience, where do you see the, the potential for growth or the, you know, the, the possibilities for some really interesting progress in this space? Oh man, water resources is a big one for me, right? And you know, we see it in commercial agriculture. I, you know, I've read varying statistics, but, you know, traditional agriculture uses somewhere between 70 and 90% of our of the world's water resources, right? And if you are cultivating in a completely controlled environment, you know, your plant doesn't consume water. Your plant uses water as a delivery mechanism and then transpires that same moisture right back out into the space. So the ability to recapture and reuse water and reduce a eliminate runoff entirely, potentially. So runoff and then the pollution into the waterways, you know, that is associated with that runoff, eliminating that entirely in an indoor cultivation facility, and then recapturing and reusing water. And it's just the water cycle over and over and over inside, you know, that is a could be hugely impactful to to water resources in the world, right? especially when you start going places where water is exceptionally scarce, right? Or where, you know, droughts are an even bigger deal. That's a big one for me. Poverty and the access to unprocessed foods for children who are kind of growing up in underserved areas, right? You know, what does it mean to a child who's never had a salad? That's a true story. You probably heard it at the... Oh, yeah. And at uh, Indirect Tech, yeah, that's right is eating a salad for the first time in his life. I can't even wrap my mind around that, you know? And what that means, you know, for the cost of healthcare over the long term, right? I mean, there, that can be really meaningful. Reduction in transportation costs associated with moving food from, you know, Mexico to Alaska, right? Why in the world are we shipping, you know... Jalapenos. <laughs> right. It just, you know... Now, with the understanding that there's a the elephant in the room being the energy component, right? Of course. That's a solvable problem, 
you know, it really is. I mean, there are with investment and renewable energy resources and those sorts of things. So then what we've got to turn our attention to is how do we make it affordable, right? And it's beyond, I know that we can make a head of lettuce that we grow four miles away from a grocery store. I know we can make it every bit as affordable as one that we grow 3,000 miles from that same grocery store. There's no way that we can't, right? And that's exciting. They're making a lot more people and we're running out of arable land, right? So then we get into, well, you know, GMO is kind of a dirty word in a lot of circles. They don't like it. But in a lot of cases, we use genetic modification to make crops more suitable for their environment, right? We want to, you know, boost production, right? We want to make the corn cob bigger or the apple redder or whatever we want to do to make it look better for folks. But we also want to make it, you know, less susceptible to climate, you know, anomalies, right? Less susceptible to extreme heat or cold, or we want to make it more, you know, stand up to certain pests and that sort of thing better. What happens if we don't have to do that? Because we're controlling the environment and we're managing that climate, right? What can we do to boost output even further in a controlled environment if we really turn our attention to just doing that? That's exciting. I think that there's real possibility there. And then like I, you know, I go back to climate change and the extreme waste, how much food, you know, how many crops are just destroyed, how much how many farmers have to be subsidized for hailstorms and floods, you know, and and all of these things that, you know, and then what that does to food prices, right? If we have a repeatable, sustainable, we know exactly what we're getting, we know exactly when we're getting it because we're not susceptible to the whims of mother nature, then shouldn't that stabilize food prices to some extent, right? I'm not saying that we replace traditional agriculture entirely. That's never going to happen, right? It's not like, this isn't the solution to a food problem, but it's certainly one of the solutions, right? Yeah, definitely. What's a a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently? Ooh, that's a tough question. You know, I still, even today, as much as I love what I do, I'm also a mom. And uh, so that's, that's always kind of in the back of my mind. Like, am I doing enough for my children? And am I doing for my work? Right. And uh, so that's a tough one. That's a, you know, not that, uh, that you're my therapist, but. uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's something that, you know, anyone who's, either, you know, an entrepreneur, a business owner in an industry that's, you know, rapidly growing, that asks a lot of you. That's a very valid question. And it's something that I'm sure everyone has to figure out for themselves, you know, where that balance lies and, you know, how much of that uh, affects your day-to-day decisions about, you know, how deeply enmeshed and how much of yourself you want to give to this business. Because, you know, at the end of the day, your children are going to model what they see in you, right? And they're going to see, you know, work ethic, behaviors, work-life balance, all those things, you know, whether you realize, you know, and I'm sure you know as a parent that they're they're always looking, they're always observant, (laughs) they're always paying attention. They are. And it's, it's interesting because I feel like I have to tell my children, you know, I'm sorry, I can't come to that event with you. I have this work thing that I have to do, right? And I have to say that too much. But I also have to say more commonly that I'm comfortable with, I'm sorry, I can't do that, you know, for work because my kid has something, right? In neither case do I feel like I, you know, like it's enough, I guess, is the, uh, is that's the question I ask myself every week was like, you know, <laughs> did everybody get enough of Brandy this week? <laughs> well, I definitely appreciate you making enough of your time for this show. So just one last thought, like, the future of this industry, having been around for a long time to see it, you know, from its early days on the cannabis side and then the move into food production, you know, how do you, you know, when you look out six months, a year from now, like what has you excited about what's possible and then the potential? So future of the industry, I, you know, the two industries, controlled environment agriculture, although both crops, you know, indoor cultivated, the cannabis industry and the food industry are, you know, they're going to follow divergent paths, right? It's not the same. What I get excited for in the cannabis industry is the real 
possibilities for medical intervention. You know, we still are not doing enough at the federal level to really dive into to all the possibilities um, of the plant. And, you know, something that we didn't really talk about is my husband in 2007 had a, a grand mal seizure and since 2011 has used only CBD oil to, to treat it um, and has, had, has not had a seizure since 2011. Oh, that's great. And so it gets me, I get very, very, very excited about all the possibilities, you know, medically with cannabis. And now that the industry has kind of established itself and, you know, it's fairly well regulated, you know, in, in most states, the possibilities are really endless. And I, I just can't wait, right, for the real research and the real investment that goes into what kinds of treatments we can really come up with. On the food side, like I, you know, I kind of dived into it a little bit, but I think, you know, there are some real benefits, financial benefits, economic benefits, health benefits, climate benefits, you know, to, to cultivating food indoors. And I'm so excited to see the excitement from the investor side of things and the industry kind of really getting a foothold and the plenties and the the caleras and the bowries of the world, you know, kind of showing us what's possible, right? And uh, increasing sophistication, driving down those costs and all the things that they're doing to, uh, you know, to make it viable as a a long-term, long-term industry. Definitely an exciting space to be in with all the (laughs) development and that technology making things possible that I think looking back 10, 15 years ago, didn't even think that something stuff like this could be possible. So I'm sure even for you to see it and to, to have a front row seat all these years has been something interesting to watch <laughs> and then gives you hope for what's possible, you know, in terms of what you've seen up until now and, and what's possible for the future. It's been fascinating and I really think it only gets cooler from here. It's a nice pun on given what you cover in the, in the industry. <laughs> <laughs> That's not <laughs> Yeah, very appropriate. Uh, Brandy, I'm glad we got to connect at Indirect Tech, and I'm glad you were able to come on and, and have some time to share your story, which is very inspirational as well. I I also want to highlight as many you know female founders or, or founders of of color in this space because you know what I noticed in the beginning is as I started interviewing you know there wasn't a lot of diversity there and so you know we didn't even touch on that you know what it's been like to be you know a female in this space but I, I think it's very inspirational to hear your story and you know the more I can do to highlight stories like this I think it just makes paints a bigger a better and broader picture of the industry and then uh, gives gives people hope and inspiration for entering it as well. Yeah, well, thank you very much for that. I It was a, a real pleasure to meet you. I'm glad we ran into each other. I appreciate you taking the time to chat. And yeah, I uh, I don't really think about the female founder component that often. But when I look around our industry, I see I see a lot of folks who uh, a lot more folks who look like me than did in the semiconductor industry, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, uh, we'll make sure we have links to Cerna. Anywhere else you want to send folks, uh, Cerna.com, anyone else to connect with you? That would be great. You can find me on LinkedIn also. Okay. All right. appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thanks again to Brandy for coming on the show and sharing her story. Full show notes are available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. We take a lot of time and effort to put in a recap of the show, timestamps, key takeaways mentioned, any resources that were mentioned in the show as well, you can find them there. And we also like to pull out a couple of quotes to make it easy for people to share, which they have been doing and they have let me know that they're doing that, which I appreciate. So there's quotes in there. So if you're finding something that resonates with you in the content, you can always look in the full show notes and get something that you need. For those of you that have been sharing and talking about the episodes online and with your friends, I truly appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. One more time, thanks again to our season six title sponsor, Cultivated. I've been extremely honored for the journey that we've been on together. I'm looking forward to season seven, 2023. I had an amazing time connecting with the team in Dubai and can't say enough good things about them and their service. And as a reminder, if you are looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. And best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com and just leave out that last E. Grateful for my team at Fullcast for all the marketing and production support provided to help 
in getting this show out to you on a timely basis. I really couldn't do it without their help. And so if you want to learn more about how a podcast may be helpful for you or your brand, check out fullcast.co for more details. As a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. And I'll be more than happy to read those out on future episodes. I want to give you a little bit of a sneak peek if you've made it this far. We've got several episodes in the can. I'm always looking to stay ahead. Podcast best practices. We've got conversations coming up in the new year with Tom Adamchek of Plant in Detroit, Isaac Berzin of Vaxalife, Tim Hade of Scale Microgrid Solutions, Henry Erst of the Control Union talking about the criteria they've put in place for certification, which is a very interesting conversation. Back for round two, we've got Tobias Peck from Square Roots, Tristan Fisher, Caleb Wilkins, Jazz Singh, Sky Kurtz, Trevor Williams, so many others that are in the works, invites out for some pretty well-known names in the space. That's just a taste, and I'm looking forward to connecting with even more folks, because what happens is when I get to these conferences, I'm going to come back with another 10 to 15 names, so i got to get ahead of these conversations. And lastly, to you, the listener, whether you've been here from episode one or you literally just found this podcast today... I am so grateful for you. I know it's a lot of investment for people's time to spend an hour listening to this show. Uh, You may or may not be doing it at a faster speed, like one and a half or one and a quarter X, which I tend to do with my podcasts. Regardless, I'm grateful for your time for this journey we've been on together. I'm looking forward to connecting with you in the new year. And as always, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published. 